0: live from the heartland and the crossroads of america it's tony katz today well good afternoon and welcome to tony katz today i'm guy relford in for tony been here a few times here lately but tony is currently in new york uh, on some very exciting business tony himself has been nominated for a marconi award those are the uh, big national awards uh, given in radio and uh, Marconi uh, considered it to be like an Oscar in the movies or an, 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 an Emmy uh, in music or a Tony uh, for on Broadway uh, Marconi's the, 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 big deal in uh, radio and Tony's been nominated for large market personality of the year across the entire United States. So that is pretty damn cool. And, uh, what we're all proud of here uh, at WIBC, where we're broadcasting from uh, today, uh, is that WIBC itself, the station, is also up for a Marconi as large market uh, station of the year. So that's kind of a big deal, and Tony and program director David Wood are both in New York, and they're going to attend uh, those awards uh, tonight, and uh, Tony's been talking about having a party on Friday. Uh, I think here downtown somewhere, uh, if uh, if he, either he or WIBC win one of those Marconi awards, so I'm rooting for him because I want to come down and go to the party, uh, and I will either I will even uh, claim uh, some small participation in success <laughs> if WIBC uh, wins as well. Uh, if you don't know me, I'm Guy Relford. Uh, I have a show on Saturdays. Uh, Five to seven PM, we call it the Gun Guy Show where we talk about Second Amendment issues. But I'm a longtime indie guy, a lifer uh, here in India. I've been a lawyer in town for a long, long time, and while my practice currently is limited to Second Amendment issues, uh, I've handled a lot of other things over the years as well. So it's fun for me to come on and fill in for Tony here on the midday show because uh, we get to talk about about anything and everything. And on that score, uh, you know, there's been a lot of coverage and even some discussion here at WIBC about how a place I frequent often, the Starbucks right here on the circle, is going to close. And, uh, and, I, and and I'll stop in there uh, sometimes before my show if I need to get a little bit caffeinated, uh, and uh, often during the week as well. Um, but it, it, it's a personal disappointment to me that Starbucks is going to close, but it's even more of a disappointment for me as a, a lifelong uh, resident of central Indiana and a frequent visitor uh, and someone who works downtown is the reason announced by Starbucks uh, for their closing the store on the circle, which is they have safety concerns for their their patrons, their customers, and their employees. And the statement they put out basically said, we don't believe that we can continue to offer the sort of warm and safe environment that Starbucks is known for. Which, of course, begs the question, uh, uh, why is it that any of us don't uh, feel safe in downtown Indianapolis? And, and to me, it's a huge indictment on the Hogshead administration. It's a huge indictment on Mer- current Marion County Prosecutor Ryan Mears, who's up for re-election. Uh, his policies, which have been incredibly weak on crime, and, and, and the, the revolving door criminal justice system that you've heard many in IMPD talk about, you've heard... Uh, Fraternal Order of Police President Rick Snyder, FOP Lodge 86, which covers uh, Marion County for all law enforcement, state, local, and federal, and uh, FOP President Rick Snyder's talked often about how police are frustrated with the revolving door criminal justice system we have here in Marion County. Well, I think I think it's a great symbol. Great meaning impactful, not positive. It's a great symbol for. What's going on in central Indiana that we're going to lose Starbucks on the circle because of safety concerns? And look, a lot of people have come out and said, oh, this is uh, being politicized. Uh, this is being spun. The real issue is unionization. Starbucks is is closing other stores reportedly across the country where the employees are trying to unionize. And this is just a cover-up for ulterior motives that Starbucks has in closing that store. I think anybody who's making that statement, and look, it, it does the unionization issue factor in to Starbucks' decision? I don't know. I can't claim any knowledge on that at all. But I can claim a lot of personal knowledge on what goes on on the circle in downtown Indianapolis, and I'm talking about during broad daylight. I leave here a little after 7 p.m. on Saturday, so I'm down here on the weekends. I'm, I'm very rarely downtown late. On occasion, I am. I'll have a dinner down here or an event Uh, ball game uh, uh, where there's been, you know, Sunday night or Monday night football uh, where the Colts are playing. Yeah, I'll be down here potentially late, but that's a fairly rare event. But I'm down here in the middle of the day all the time. And I'm on the circle all the time. The station where I'm broadcasting from right now, WIBC, we're right on the circle. 40 Monument Circle is the address. And so a lot of the businesses on the circle, I like to frequent. One of my favorite subs ever Hey, no association, no relationship, but I love Potbelly subs, man. They're right on the circle. In fact, they're almost right next to Starbucks. And I wander over there for a toasted sub every now and then. Fantastic sandwiches. Big fan. But I have a personal experience that immediately came to mind when I heard Starbucks was closing on the circle, which is that I had gone to Potbelly. I hadn't gone to Starbucks. I'd gone to Potbelly for a sandwich. I was down to do my weekly spot on the Hammer and Nigel show at three thirty-five. Uh, and it's replayed usually about 6.15 or so, but at 3.35 every Monday, I, I typically come downtown, we do a live spot, we call Monday Gunday on, on the Hammer and Nigel show, number one rated afternoon drive time show in Indy, I'll have you know. But uh, I'll come down and do that spot, and and, and uh, Hammer, Nigel and I will have some fun, we'll talk about what's going on on uh, Second Amendment related issues. But I got down here, and I was down a little early, and I hadn't had lunch, and it's, almost three o'clock, I didn't have a lot of time, but I ran over to Potbelly. I grab a sub, I wolf a sub down, I walk out, and there's some what appeared to be homeless people hanging out right in front of the Circle Theater. I think it's still, still called Hilbert Circle Theater, unless uh, it's been renamed. But, you know, the Circle Theater, beautiful place, where the Indianapolis Symphony plays, beautiful building inside and out, but unfortunately, uh, it's not particularly an attractive sight, but there are a bunch of homeless people, what appear to be homeless people, hanging out in front of the Circle Theater. And one of them, in a very aggressive tone, yells to me, and there's a profanity involved I won't share with you. So that we can keep our license, which probably would be a benefit—a benefit when you're trying to win a Marconi Award in New York tonight—is having your FCC license at the time. I would think is probably a requirement. But, I'll, sparing you the profanity, this guy yells at me, calls me uh, the, the MF, and then says, "Give me some money," just like that. And I, I turn around, and what was really kind of ironic. Uh, if not almost unbelievable, is this was on a Monday. I had spent all weekend, Saturday and Sunday, in a training course. I'm a firearms instructor as well as a Second Amendment attorney, but I love to take classes as a student, and I do it often. I've taken four classes this year, including a week-long combined rifle and, car- and, uh, and pistol class uh, out at Gunside Academy in Arizona. But here I'd taken a class right here in Indiana, a really excellent class, and it was called Street encounter skills and tactics, and it was just what it sounds like. It's it's like if you're armed with whatever you might be armed with. Typically, we we're training with firearms, but there was also there was OC spray involved, what a lot of people call Mace, chemical spray of some kind. We train some with that a little bit with 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 open hand and blunt objects, but it, primarily a gun course. And I'm a guy who has a license to carry. I typically carry a gun wherever I'm legally allowed to carry a gun. I was carrying a gun that day. But I'd been in this class for two days and it was all about street encounters that turned violent and how it is you should go about defending yourself in the course of that. And a lot of these scenarios that we ran, and this is what I loved about the class, is it was a scenario-based class. And a lot of it turned with a lot of the scenarios involved encounters that turned violent. And a lot of it were bad guys who were just making a pretense to get close enough to you to commit some violent act upon you that would then require you to defend yourself or not. And a lot of them started off with things like, like a gas station scenario, like, uh, hey, man, nice car. Hey, man, what kind of car is this? And somebody's just kind of walking up closer to you under a pretense because they really intended to rob you and just wanted to be close to you when they tr- either tried to hurt you or pulled a weapon, whatever it might be. And a lot of the scenarios actually started with, hey, man, you got any money? Or, hey man, I could really use a couple of bucks. So, when I walk out of Potbelly with, you know, having just eaten my sandwich and I hear, hey, MF, give me some money. I, my very first thought it was one of the other students or the instructor from my class who was just having some fun with me because I just spent two full days dealing with the scenario of, hey, give me some money. So, I kind of had a half smile on my face. I'm looking around and no, it was a dude walking toward me fairly aggressively, calling me a name and demanding money. At that point, I realized it's not a joke from the class I just took. And so I turn around and I start walking away. The guy's following me now. And he's cussing at me and he's threatening me. And he's saying, man, I will end you if you don't give me some money. And, of course, there's profanity throughout this. I will end you. I remember that distinctly. I will dust you. I remember thinking, I haven't had that said to me in a while. I will dust you. You and, and, And the threats continued. As I was walking around Monument Circle back toward the station, this guy's getting a little closer to me. So I I actually turned around. I said, "Look, whatever's going to happen, it's not going to happen with my back turned to this guy." So I turned around and confronted him and placed my hand on my firearm, not where he could see it, but where I knew I could draw it if I needed to. I held my hand out as in a stop motion, and I said, "You need to back the blank up." And I actually said a little prayer in that moment of, please, God, don't make me shoot this guy. I don't want to shoot the guy. I spent a lot of time training to defend myself, my family, my home, my fellow citizens, but I have no desire to hurt anybody. And as I teach and as I've been taught, it's a tool of last resort. I I literally said a little prayer to myself, don't make me shoot this guy, please. So he stopped. He sized me up and down a little bit. And I'm wearing jeans and a t-shirt. And by the way, I, I'm, I, I'm the first to admit I'm getting a little old, but I'm 6'4", 225. Went to college on a football scholarship. My first job I had in, in college was being a bouncer in a bar. I'm not a little guy, and I'm not somebody that typically you look at and go, oh, I'm going to go intimidate that guy into giving me some money. The guy was probably 6'160". So I'm a lot bigger than this dude. He's threatening me. He's telling me he's going to dust me. He's going to end me. He's going to kill me. He's clearly somewhat out of his mind. He cusses at me a little more, decides, because he had some ounce of sanity left, he decides maybe it's not a good idea to continue his threats on me, cussed at me a little bit, gave me the finger, turned around and walked away. I called 911. I thought about it for a little bit. I looked at my watch. I still had like six minutes before I had to be live on the air with Hammer and Nigel. And I said, you know what? Being a bigger guy... Six, four, two bills plus. If he's willing to follow me, threaten me, demanding money, what would he do to my granddaughter? What would he do to my 91-year-old mom? What would he do What would he do to the, the average person walking around who doesn't have even the apparent capacity to defend themselves like I do? I said, "No, this is not OK, and by the way, that's a crime. You threaten someone and demand money from them. Arguably, that's a strong-armed robbery. At a minimum, it's intimidation. Intimidation is a crime of making a threat with an ulterior motive, like forcing them to engage in conduct against their will, like giving you money. So if I want to threaten someone into giving me money, at a minimum, that's intimidation. So I called 911. And I told him, I said, look, if he's willing to do it to me, at no point did I fear for my safety. I could, I could have taken care of myself one way or another. But I feared for the safety of other people walking around the circle. This is at 3 o'clock on a Monday afternoon in broad daylight, starting in front of the Hilbert Circle Theater. That's not okay. And by the way, to IMPD's credit, because this whole revolving door of the criminal justice system, I do not fault IMPD in any way, shape, or form. They do a great job of picking up bad guys and putting them in jail. The problem is the system, including the prosecutor's office, spits them right back out. IMPD was awesome. By the time I got up the elevator to come do radio, I come to the station. We look right out over the circle. We're on the fourth floor here in the studio. I look right out the window, and two IMPD cars were there, and some particularly large IMPD officers were dealing with this guy. I did my spot about 4 o'clock. They still had the guy in the circle. Went down there. They were arresting him. They were actually arresting him because they'd gotten more reports on this guy. They had gotten more 911 calls on him in the time since I'd called And others reported that he had threatened them with a hammer, trying to force them to give him money. And he was actually uh, arrested for and prosecuted for intimidation with a deadly weapon because of the hammer. Now, I did not report, nor did I see a hammer. If a guy had come at me with a hammer, if he had raised a hammer while approaching me, things might have ended up a whole lot different. But I go through that story, and I've talked about it to some degree, maybe not in that level of detail, But I've talked about a little bit here on the Hammer Nigel show, a little bit on my show. But that happened to me, a big old ugly six-foot-four dude, at 3 o'clock on a Monday afternoon, starting in front of the Hilbert Circle Theater as I walked out of Potbelly on the circle. If anybody wants to say that it's merely political or it's a made-up excuse that Starbucks is concerned about the safety of its patrons and its employees and that's why they're closing – I cry BS. I cry BS because that happened to me, and I can't imagine if one of the 90-pound teenagers that works in Starbucks had walked out and dealt with this same guy, what would have happened? That person could have been hurt, could have been traumatized at a minimum. And that's what we have on the circle in downtown Indy. And look, I'm not trying to scare people away from coming downtown. I love downtown. I, I, I want to fight for downtown. I want to get a, a prosecutor in office. Will be much more aggressive about putting people in jail and keeping them in jail. I, I want to fight for a, a mayor's administration that will support downtown businesses and protect them, protect them from those things that drive customers away, like violence, like vagrancy, like panhandling, like homelessness. I mean, it, it's a, it's a whole nother issue, but I've, I've had to walk around. Apparent homeless people who are urinating on the sidewalk. I have to walk around what they're doing to walk around the circle to come up and do radio. And I love this city. Like I said, I'm a lifer in in this area. I come downtown three, four times a week at a minimum now. I want to fight for this city. But if you think it's a politically motivated excuse that Starbucks says they're closing for safety concerns, I... Have personal experience. I have a personal experience that makes me beg to differ. In the meantime, we're taking a break. This is Guy Relford in for Tony Katz on Tony Katz Today. And welcome back to Tony Katz Today. I'm Guy Relford in for Tony. We're glad you're with us. Well, Tony is out in New York, hopefully in the process of winning a Marconi Award for Large Market Personality of the Year. And hopefully WIBC brings home the Large Market Station of the Year during the Marconi Awards, which are set for tonight. So I'll be watching social media closely for that. Uh, here quickly before the bottom of the hour, it looks like as you've heard on several different shows here on WIBC, Republicans really are gaining quite a bit of momentum going into the midterm elections, and there's some history here that I thought I'd share that we all ought to consider. Now, none of this should be taken as an excuse to not go vote. That's first and foremost. But first and foremost, but consider this: from in midterm elections from 1962 to 2018. The party with a president in the White House, when that president has a job approval rating under 50 percent, and Joe Biden's, by the way, are down in the low to mid-40s at best. They dipped into the 30s for a while. But when the president in the White House has a job approval rating below 50, that party has lost on average 39 House seats during midterm elections. Thirty-nine. Another interesting uh, uh, issue going into the midterm, something to consider. In addition, we have Senate races now in five states, a minimum of five Ohio, Nevada, Wisconsin, North Carolina, and certainly Georgia that are within the margin of error on polls, many of which Democrats were favored quite a bit as few was a few days ago. So, something to keep an eye on going into midterms. This is Guy Relford in for Tony Katz. And welcome back. I'm Guy Relford in for Tony Katz on Tony Katz Today. We're glad you're with us. It's a pleasure to be here as Tony's in New York. By the way, I just had had someone on social media after hearing me say that Tony's in New York uh, up for a Marconi Award. Marconi, the inventor of the radio, as I recall, um, is, is sent me a message and said, Guy, when are you up for your macaroni award? Now, I, I don't know if that's uh, a, a, a purposeful and, and humorous misspelling of Marconi, uh, or whether his spell checker took over, or whether it's actually kind of a subtle insult. And And how could the use of the term macaroni be a subtle insult? Here's a little history for you. You know, the the Yankee Doodle song, right? Yankee Doodle went to London riding on a pony, stuck a feather in his hat and called it Macaroni. If you've heard that and thought that it was a reference to pasta or a noodle, you're actually not not correct. The term Macaroni, as used in the Yankee Doodle song, comes from a a, a, a trend that was going on in primarily London, but in the UK. And there were... Members of, of, of the more uh, influential, uh, wealthy, uh, entitled class, uh, primarily males, who, who fell into the custom of, of starting to wear these incredibly ornate outfits, very, very, very uh, frilly. A lot of a, a lot of lace and a, and a lot of ruffles, and they started wearing these incredibly ornate, and very high wigs. And it was like the higher you could you could get your wig styled up high on top of your head, then the cooler you were, and 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 the more you were showing off your your affluence, your wealth, your your style, and and it and it became a bit of a competition, and there were reports even of of, of men having to sit on the floor of their carriages rather than on the seat because their wigs were too high to sit inside the carriages. That's how, how silly this trend got. And then there started to be some criticism arise to say, for some odd reason in London, uh, in order to show how important and, and rich and, and influential you were as a man in London, uh, the, the more you really tried to dress and appear like a woman. And all of a sudden, and, and, and by the way, these people who dressed this way and who wore these wigs and who fell into this competition almost uh, among among rich families and, and, and rich men in London, they became known as macaroni. And, and I don't know if there's any association there with the pasta noodle or not. I don't know what their connection might be. But that's where the term was. And so Londoners and, and, and the British started making fun of the so-called Yankee Doodles, right? The colonists, saying that essentially that we were we were very base and, and 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 we didn't understand style and we and we were we're not very intelligent. We were all around rough and 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 unschooled. And and so they were making funny making fun of us essentially as Americans or the colonists. And, and, and talking and and, and this and this, the song Yankee Doodle was created as a way of mocking Americans. So that riding a pony into London and sticking and, and sticking a feather in your hat and calling it macaroni was a way of making fun of Americans. But because the macaroni started being ridiculed even within London because they got so ridiculously feminine and so ridiculously ornate and overdone that macaroni became, Uh, A a source of of derision, of criticism, even by Londoners or by the British toward the British. So even though the song was created as a way of mocking Americans, eventually Americans, who kind of like being portrayed as a little bit rough around the edges, right, and as not being as frilly and feminine as the people that are being depicted in, in newspapers and magazines and whatnot, in the press generally coming out of London, Americans embraced it. And even embraced Yankee Doodle as sort of an American anthem, often played by by American troops during the War for Independence. So if you're the person who, who asked when I'm up for my macaroni award, if that's a reference <laughs> to how frilly and feminine I am, then bravo on the historical reference. Uh, but uh, if if you just misspelled Marconi, then, then perhaps uh, that's not the direction you were going. In the meantime, back to perhaps more important issues. Uh, what's going on uh, in the national news? And you've heard this reported both on WIBC News and a couple of, the, of the, the the commentators here on different shows have mentioned it as well. But I want to get into a little more detail and give you a little more background on what's going on with Biden releasing more oil out of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And a lot of people, I think, don't have a very good understanding of of what the Strategic Petroleum Reserve even is and and why it exists. So let's talk a little bit about that. The the Strategic Petroleum Reserve uh, was created in 1975. And if you recall what was going on in 1975, is we were just emerging out of the oil embargo. This is the OPEC embargo that occurred in 73 and 74. And in the the throes of the oil embargo is exactly when you had gas rationing and you had the the lines of of cars that people had pushed into gas stations where there was no gas to be had. And people literally left their cars sitting there until the gas station could get some supply of gas. And that's, that's because, in, because America had become so dependent on importing oil from other states, including the OPEC nations. And that's exactly what OPEC stands for, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries. That, it, that, that, that we had become so dependent on them that when they choked us off as a way of manipulating prices, then it, it really brought America to its knees in a lot of ways. And Congress looked at this and said, okay, we don't want to put ourselves in that position again. So there's a number of things we want to do. We want to encourage exploration and oil production here in the U.S. In addition, we want to create a strategic reserve so that as a country, we've got a huge supply of oil that can mitigate any attempt to choke off our oil supply. So starting in 1975, the U.S. started stockpiling oil to some degree. And it turned out to be, for the United States government, a a shockingly good investment. Why do I say that? Because if you go back and look at the value of what's in the ground, these are underground storage facilities uh, in the southern United States. And there's a number of them that, that, that are linked. They have a capacity of over 700 million gallons of oil, 700 million. And in fact, as late as 2010, we had over 700 million gallons of oil in the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. It was at capacity. It was full. How cool is that? But what has happened since then? Politicians, for political reasons, have begun selling off the oil that we've, had, that we've stockpiled. This is our rainy day fund of oil. This is a smart move for the US to not be dependent upon other countries for our energy. And as I said, it's a it was a smart move. For instance, in, in one assessment, this goes back to 2012, but they looked at the value of what was in the ground, the oil in the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, the value of it was $43 billion at the time. And what the U.S. had paid for it, because they'd been stockpiling it since 1975, what they would paid for it was only $20 billion an incredibly good investment for the United States government that typically only spends ridiculous amounts of money, up into the several trillion, and does a particularly lousy job of making it. Well, here, they doubled their investment in terms of what they had in the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And they put America in a much stronger place in terms of not being choked off for our energy. But what started happening in 2015, and has continued since, is and this is not publicized, not like the more recent reductions in the reserve that Biden's doing strictly to manipulate price in advance of the midterms. I mean, if, if you don't see that, if you don't understand that, you're not paying attention. But even before that, because there's been pressure to reduce the deficit and there's also pressure to reduce spending, well, the government can't wean itself off of spending. So what do they do? They're looking for other ways to reduce the national deficit. And since 2015, the United States government has been selling off oil out of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, selling it, and using that money to offset the deficit. haven't done a particularly good job because the deficit deficit has continued to soar. But that was at a fairly low trickle. What has happened since then is fairly astounding. Because Biden announced that because he was getting political pressure over the cost of oil, political pressure, that is actually accountability for his having declared war on fossil fuel here in the United States. Don't take my word for that. Take his word for that. That's exactly what he said he was going to do during the campaign. He said he was going to put oil companies out of business he said it was going to have to be painful but he's going to drive this country in the direction of of so-called clean energy and to do so he had to declare war on fossil fuels when you choke off internal production when you're not granting the leases you need to grant for people to do exploration and production in the US when you kill a pipeline under production that could have moved massive amounts of oil and let's let's and let's just address that for just as a footnote here for a moment so, supposedly, the pipeline that Biden killed his very first day in office, he was doing so for environmental reasons. There were environmental groups that he had made commitments to during the campaign. He said, we can't have this pipeline. Oh, my gosh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to destroy, destroy forests. It's going to, you know, all the things that, of course, pipelines do not do. Which do you think is safer or more dangerous for the environment, having oil in a pipeline, That's moving in a closed system. Or moving oil in trucks that roll upon the highway. What do you think is more dangerous? What do you think is more risky? What do you think is safer for the environment? When you look at accidents, you look at spills, you look at contamination, you look at problems that arise from moving oil in this country. Pipelines are infinitely safer and better for the the environment than putting oil in trucks and rolling them upon the highway, where there are, oh, say, wrecks. So it was idiotic from day one, but it was his commitment to those that hate the oil industry and hate fossil fuels, and also consistent with the so-called clean energy policy. So his policies have resulted in the rise in gas prices because of the rise in oil prices. Yes, the war in Ukraine had some involvement, but when you look at the graph of what oil prices were doing at the very day that Biden invaded Ukraine, they were on an incredible rise, and all they've done is continue on that same linear pattern from the point that that, that Biden invaded Ukraine. Has that had an effect? I'm sure it has. But for some reason, Democrats never want to acknowledge the upward spike of oil prices prior to that. So what we're now doing is we're 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 taking 180 million gallons on top of what was already being sold off and taking that out of our Strategic Petroleum Reserve. We have gone from in 2010 to over 700 million gallons to now just over 400 million. We've sold off for political purposes nearly half of the Strategic Reserve, the Rainy Day Fund, And I guarantee you, you don't think those other countries that both sell us oil and hate us, like, oh, say, Saudi Arabia, they play nice and they want our military assistance and they want to buy our military goods and we want to sell it to them. Certainly the military-industrial complex wants to. But do you think they like us? Do you think they wish us success? Do you think they wouldn't embargo oil again tomorrow if they thought they could get away with it and not be punished in other ways? And for every million gallons or 100 million gallons that disappears out of our strategic strategic reserve it puts them in a stronger position and and and, and I, I gotta tell you go to go go to wikipedia and search for strategic petroleum reserve and look at the graph there's a graph up in the upper right hand corner and it'll show you the rate of sell-off and and look at look at the incredible downward downward spike because there's such a thing as a downward spike the downward line on this graph just from 2020 through 2021 and more recently this year in 2022. When you have the kind of spending we do and the national deficit that we do, what are you doing? You, 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 you've, you, you put yourself in an incredible debt. You've taken what was smart, which is essentially a savings account in the form of oil, And you're siphoning it off at an incredibly rapid rate to the tune of almost half, purely for political reasons, so you can drive down the price of gas just enough to win midterms, knowing if you don't continue to do exactly the same thing, it's going to spike out of control again. And you think that's okay, and you think the American voter is not paying attention. That's what's incredible to me. And the American voter ought to be seeing exactly what's going on here. Understand what these numbers mean and understand how, in terms of the long-term security and economic prosperity of this country, how this is incredibly stupid and there will be a price to pay. That's the thing about spending that's out of control and, 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 and giving away your savings, giving away your rainy day fund. There's always a price to pay, whether it's your household or whether running a country. Same economic principles apply. Blowing through your savings and racking up debt is never an effective policy, and that's what our leaders in Washington are doing right now, and they're doing it to manipulate midterm elections and solely for that purpose. And we all ought to be incensed and outraged as a result. Right now we're taking a break. This is Guy Relford in for Tony Katz on Tony Cast Today. Welcome back. Guy Relford in for Tony Katz on Tony Cast Today. I'll tell you what, we just had a caller that uh, – that called in a very important correction, and I'm really glad. I, whoever you are, uh, I'm sure there are several listeners who are thinking exactly the same thing, and I'm really, really glad you called, and thank you. But someone, someone just called in and said, guy's been talking about gallons of oil, In the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, it's not gallons, it's barrels. And that's exactly right. And and the graphs I I was looking at at the time, the articles um, that I was looking at, very clearly said barrels. And for whatever reason, this happens to me sometimes on radio, uh, the word gallons came out of my mouth. And it's absolutely right. And by the way, when you talk about oil, there are actually 42 gallons of oil in a barrel of oil. So the numbers I was talking about in terms of gallons, you can multiply that times 42. But in the meantime, uh, thank you for that correction. Right now, we're taking a break. This is Guy Relford in for Tony Katz on Tony Katz Today.